Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. I'll tell you um, how I came upon this story. So um, it's a very rural area. It's a border county. It's probably, I would say, five miles from the border where this happened. This is Vanessa Croy. She is an anchor and reporter for Ken's Five in San Antonio, Texas. I have a place out there, so I know a lot of people. uh, I know the area really well, and and that's kind of how I came upon this case. I heard people, the rumblings about it, like, you know, remember the Ariado family. This story takes place on a rural stretch of Highway 277, just outside of Sonora, Texas. It's an area I can tell you even today there's no cell phone service out there. So, I mean, that kind of sets the scene how rural it is. It's a, you know, there's nothing out there. There's one little store out there and um, a little guy, a guy runs the store out there and that's it for miles. Uh, you'll just see a bunch of deer, maybe a car. <laughs> so, uh, and it's still like that today. Vanessa discovered this story when she was looking through records of old cold cases. One was called the Ariano Family Murders. I found the Edwards County Sheriff. Um, I realized it was a cold case for them. I said, can you put me in touch with the Texas Ranger who is still pursuing this case? And she said, oh no, the Rangers don't have it, we do. And I said, oh. And she said, and uh, my chief deputy has been very much working on this, so he has not let this go. I mean, every day he's, he does a little bit on it. Just, you know, that's his mission. He wants to, he doesn't want to retire until he solves this case. She said, we'll give you access to, you know, what we can. So they had uh, boxes and boxes of, you know, evidence. I mean, it wasn't, uh, you know, I say evidence, I mean, you know, files, you know, newspaper clippings, uh, old Texas Rangers reports, uh, reports from the scene. And so I spent days and days uh, going through that. One of Vanessa's partners in her investigation is Chief Deputy. Daryl Volkman. He is a former San Antonio police officer who, upon leaving the SAPD, joined the Edwards County Sheriff's Office and has been working the Ariano case for many years. You know, we, we don't have a, a bad crime that happens here about once every three years, but this was, a, this was the one of the century. It was a horrible crime. For Chief Deputy Volkman, the case is one that really haunts him. He tells Vanessa that he often wakes up in the middle of the night, the images of the murders seared into his memory. He took us out to where the crime scene happened, and it was actually spanned over, I think, a mile. Uh, and, and you could just tell his demeanor changed when we got out there, you know? And I'm, I'm one of the reporters that I, I try to stand back and let, and let them talk and let them, you know, kind of reflect on the situation. And he stood there for a good five or 10 minutes and just, you know, you could just see that you could you could see that something was going through his mind. And I said, Daryl, what is it? And he said, this case has just haunted me for, ever since I first got it. Um, I mean, because it was just such a brutal, violent, awful. I mean, I I, I can't even think of any other words. I've seen the, the photos, the, the raw photos of the crime scene. And it, I can't imagine looking at those every day. I mean, I looked at those binders probably three or four times and I, those images will never, I'll never get them out of my mind. And I can't imagine looking at them every day and just sitting there saying, I will find justice for you. And that's really, what's his mission, so. 
On this week's episode of True Crime Chronicles, we travel to a Texas border county. It's on this stretch of Highway 277 that a terrible crime was committed over 55 years ago. This case is the oldest unsolved homicide case in the entire state of Texas. It's April 16th, 1968. On this clear spring day, the Ariano family, Manuel, his wife Monica, and their children Manuel Jr., Leticia, and Eduardo, as well as Monica's sister, Rosa Elia, have all piled into their baby blue 1958 Buick and have been on the road for the past several hours. They're traveling the 200 miles between their home in Villa de Fuente, Mexico, and San Angelo, Texas, where a family member has recently given birth to a new baby cousin. According to reports, their road trip was expected to be an easy one, and the family was excited for their mini reunion. The big Buick is humming along Highway 277 when a tire blows, forcing the family over onto the side of the road. They fix the flat, get back on the road, only for another blowout to happen just a few miles later. Police reports detail that highway maintenance crews remember seeing them on the side of the road. Their car broke down, uh, they had a flat tire, and somebody saw them and took uh, Manuel and Manuel Jr. into town to get the tire fixed. Manuel and his five-year-old son get into the man's pickup and take the tire with them. They drop the tire off at the repair shop, grab a quick bite to eat at a local diner, pick up the tire, and get back into the man's truck to return to the family car. And uh, whoever it was uh, took them back to the car. They believe it was dusk, almost evening, and that was the last anybody ever saw them alive except for the little boy. There are some fuzzy details in this next part. Early the next morning, April 19th, 1968, some reports say a highway maintenance crew, others say nearby ranch hands, come across a massacre. It is a truly gruesome crime scene, spread out over several miles. Manuel Sr. was found near where the car originally was, several hundred feet from the side of the highway. He had been shot and stabbed multiple times. Manuel's wife, Monica, and sister-in-law, Rosa, were found a mile south. Both had been shot and stabbed. Rosa had been sexually assaulted. The three kids were found closer to their father. They had all been shot and stabbed as well. Five-year-old Manuel Jr. was found laying in a pool of his own blood. But amazingly, he was still alive. Their car, which still had the blown tire, had been driven eight miles to the south and then abandoned. They never found the 22 caliber handgun used in the attack. Investigators begin searching the area and questioning any and all potential witnesses. It was a very thorough investigation as far as we understand. I mean, this family was brutally murdered on the side of the highway. If you saw the photos, it's it, it's just devastating. It devastated these communities. It's a place where everyone knows everybody else. The former sheriff said it like that. You know, you're, you're looking in the eyes of your neighbor saying, I wonder if that was him, was it her, you know, who did this? Police speak to the tire shop employees, people that had been at the diner and the road crews who had seen them and are able to put together a sketch of what they believe the perpetrator may have looked like. But the description and sketch does little to narrow down a potential suspect list. So many unanswered questions because, you know, they got a description of this cowboy, but once again, you know, it could be anybody. I know they, um, because everybody, you know, who doesn't wear a cowboy hat in West Texas, right? Meanwhile, Manuel Jr. underwent several surgeries, including brain surgery, as he had been shot in the back of the head. 
As Manuel Jr. begins to make his recovery, they try and get as much information as they can from him. What we heard from uh, Chief Deputy Volkman is that he believes today, he went through and read through all the transcripts of the interview, that he believes there was a little bit of a language barrier because the little boy did not speak English. Combine that with the trauma he had just undergone, hearing loss from being shot in the head, and his age. At one point, investigators asked the five-year-old, quote, was he an American? His response was, no, we didn't get any ice cream. Daryl believes that some information that they could have gotten from the boy was lost there. And although several leads were generated, they most likely were based off of incorrect translation, and they all led nowhere. The small community is rattled. Investigators give three potential motives. The first is robbery. The second is sexual assault. And the third is a racial motive. You know, it's a story that was passed down. I, I know that, you know, some friends of mine out there at the time, I mean, they are, they were young at the time, uh, that their families, that they believed it was a racially motivated crime. They were terrified. I mean, especially the Mexican-American families in that area were terrified because they, uh, she even told me that when the families would travel in that area, they would never go by themselves. They had at least two to three families in a caravan traveling down 277 if they had to go to Sonora or back to Del Rio because they were afraid. Um, you know, they didn't know what was out there. They thought some, some brutal murder or, murder or murderers were out there targeting Mexican-Americans. Manuel Jr. was certain there was only one person who committed all the crimes against his family. For Deputy Chief Volkman, he thinks there must have been more. He believes that there had to be two people. Um, he said there's no way that one person could have done that much by themselves. And and I know this thing that, and I always just stay in my mind, Daryl said, there's no way that Manuel would have allowed one per, you know, allowed his family to be attacked like that. He would have fought like an animal. And, you know, I, I can't imagine just one person either. So, um, but yeah, he believes there were two people. Several years go by with no breaks in the case. But then a new lead emerges when a strikingly similar crime is committed in California. The even bigger twist, the perpetrator of that crime, is the man who worked at the tire shop that the Arianos used to repair their flat. Police travel to California to collect fingerprints and DNA, but testing comes back inconclusive. They said, you know, they were sure that he had done it. But then when the DNA didn't match, they questioned that. At the time of the murders, they had recovered DNA evidence from Rosa's body. Chief Deputy Volkman believes that there may have been contamination of that evidence because police at the time did not have the knowledge or means to test it for matches, and it may have been incorrectly stored or mishandled. And so they could not do anything there, but he did match some of the descriptions and he worked at the tire shop, so it was a very likely match, but then again, the DNA didn't match. So now what? And that's where they were. Every couple of years, a new tip would come in, investigators would follow it, and they would come away empty-handed. For Vanessa, this case is a very personal one. I know a lot of people down there, and I'm down there a lot because I have a house in that area. And I can't tell you how many people stop me in town at the grocery store. We saw your story. My grandmother remembers that. Or, you know, my dad remembers, you know, not traveling down that road. And we, you know, a lot of people knew about it um, and still talk about it in that area. There may be a new hope for solving this case. So after our story aired, I think they got probably around 50 calls, he said, uh, but one of them was what they wanted. 
um, and he said it was okay if I said that. So he said it was the best lead they've had in many, many years. I can't discuss it, um, but listening to what it was, it is a very good lead. So they were able to, um, from that person uh, who gave them some information, they were able to uh, track down a suspect um, that lives in Texas. I can't say where exactly, but in Texas, and they have gotten DNA from this individual, and that is right now being processed um, in, with DPS and the Texas Rangers. For now, a small memorial marks the site of the murder, a reminder that an unsolved crime happened almost six decades ago. And Manuel Jr., just five years old at the time, is now in his 60s. He lost his entire family that day in 1968 and is still without justice. Want to teach your kids financial literacy but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson, along with Reed Redman and Spencer Brudig. Guys, before we get more into Spencer's story and this case this week, I just wanted to give a quick update on the episode from last week, and it's the case of uh, Tristan Bailey, the 13-year-old who was... Uh, murdered in Florida, and a 14-year-old has been in custody. A lot of people have been wanting, asking, uh, talking about upgrading charges uh, and, and basically charging him in a, as an adult. Uh, that has happened. A grand jury indicted 14-year-old Aiden Fucci last week on first-degree premeditated murder charges. So that transfers the case from juvenile to adult court. And I will tell you that the details of what are coming out of the investigation are just truly horrific. She was stabbed 114 times or 114 stab wounds, including 49 that were defensive. So that's the update on this uh, case in Florida that a lot of people are paying attention to and has just caused a, a, such sadness there for so many people and, and Tristan Bailey's family and friends. All right, so let's get back to the story this week. Spencer, uh, this is an old case, and so some of the details are murky. I mean, this is maybe one of the older ones we've done. Absolutely. I think murky is a, a, a putting it lightly. One of the things I just want to start off with is how extensively this case has actually been worked. Apparently, the files that exist on this case are thousands of pages long, and everyone from local sheriff citizen detectives, journalists, uh, Texas Rangers, they have all looked at this case over the last 55 years and they still are still actively working it. And every five to 10 years, a, a tip would come in that would reignite local investigators to then take a look at this case again. Uh, the last big one was in 1999. There was a caller that it was actually dismissed as an unreliable informant, but they restarted the case back up for the new millennium. Um, and then now it is currently being worked, as we all heard, that kind of final update from Vanessa was they think they have a potential big break in this case, and they may be able to identify who committed these murders. You know, Will, you mentioned that this is one of the older cases that we've covered. I was looking back through our old episodes, and I think this might even be the oldest cold case specifically we've covered. And it really is just incredible that there are now fresh leads on this this cold case that's been being investigated for over 50 years. I'm just really interested in knowing 
how this concludes, though. Vanessa was very tight-lipped about what investigators are saying. They don't want to release any more information than they absolutely have to. And also, I'm I'm really interested in knowing the DNA component of this. I, I know that tests had come back inconclusive in the past. I believe this is DNA-led breakthrough right now. So we'll just have to wait and see. And I know Vanessa is very excited about this. Chief Deputy Volkman is very excited about this. And they are in constant communication, talking practically every day, asking if there's any more information that has come out since the last time they spoke. Right. And talking about that DNA, of course, this was the 1960s. This was well before anyone knew the potential uses that we would have for DNA evidence today. That means they also didn't know how to properly store and preserve DNA evidence. And it sounds like that has raised concerns for the detective who's now on this case, right? The potential that the DNA evidence was contaminated over the decades. Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, one of the big pieces of evidence that they have completely lost is the Buick. And you would think that that is the linchpin of the entire case is the murders might have happened in and around this car. Someone drove that vehicle after the murders happened. And uh, investigators are now convinced that it was probably destroyed in a salvage yard some years ago. So really unfortunate that you know they don't have the a major piece of evidence in, in that 58 Buick. Well, and you got to ask, how, how does it end up in a salvage yard? That's the biggest piece of evidence in this high-profile case. One other thing about the Buick that I wanted to ask about is you said it was found with the tire still blown out. So presumably this crime either happened right as they were being dropped back off with a new tire or or very soon after before they had a chance to swap in the new tire. Is that kind of the timeline there? Yeah. You know, there's, again, there's so much paperwork regarding this case. There's conflicting reports. Uh, Depending on who you're reading as the reporter, there was a big LA Times article, you know, obviously Ken's Five is doing reporting. Vanessa's been doing reporting for years on this. Um, the timeline is not certain. Uh, there is some theory that the man that drove them, they got into an argument over him potentially shooting at wildlife uh, as they were driving back from the tire shop, and that might have sparked something. But I don't know how that then escalates into you know, a massacre. So uh, there's all sorts of theories regarding what may have happened, but there's just nothing conclusive. And and I'll be interested to know if there will ever be anything that's actually conclusive as to the story and timeline of how this massacre took place. As old as the case is, there's this amazing detail of this little boy, right, who shot twice in the head, survives, and he's actually still alive today. He is, yeah. I mean, he's got to be in his uh, very, very late 50s or or early 60s. Vanessa had said that they are aware of where he is. Investigators, I believe, are still in contact with him, uh, but uh, no real other information is known about uh, Manuel Jr. But as we've talked about case still being investigated. There are still some active leads. And Spencer, there's an open cash reward, right? Yeah. According to the Texas Department of Public Safety, an organization called the Texas Crime Stoppers are offering a reward of $3,000 to anyone that provides you know correct information on this. And that phone number, if anyone out there has a tip, is 1-800-252-TIPS, 1-800-252-TIPS. All right, Spencer, thanks for bringing us the story this week. We'll keep an eye on this one if there's any news that does come out. Uh, Thanks again. All right, be sure to check out our Facebook group, Inside the Crime Vault, for True Crime Chronicles, along with Reed Redmond and Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. We'll be back next week with a new case and a new story.